0: Welcome back. I hope you will enjoy this week. This week's guest is David King. He's really one of the uh, finest lawyers I've ever encountered and one of my genuine uh, legal heroes in the world. He recently passed away. He was described by uh, John Morgan, and I'm quoting John, as the lawyer you called when your whole world was on the line. And uh, he has made a a great impact in the state of Florida. And he's a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers and really has done some great things. Uh, This interview was recorded uh, several years ago. And I just released uh, a short edit of it, about 20 minutes, as my very first podcast. Uh, But David. Uh, is candidly worth way more than 20 minutes, and so this is kind of a long interview that's unedited. And uh, my hope is that you will enjoy uh, his wisdom on a a wide range of topics from marriage to uh, depositions and preparation to just some great life advice. So uh, please enjoy uh, one of my favorites of all time, David King.
1: It just brings out the fire in your belly, you know, when you hopefully do some good for people that Lord knows need somebody to be their champion.
0: This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Uh, I'm so uh, glad to be here with uh, David King. David, thank you for taking your time to be with me today.
1: Sure, thank you.
0: Tell us, uh, I was, I'm always trying to figure out where do I start, um, and I'm going to start in an odd place, which is what most occupies your time in this current season of life?
1: Well, I'm still practicing law, which is a good thing, uh, I think, and then I'm very occupied this summer with my son's race for uh, governor.
0: Seems, seems like it's going well.
1: Uh, yes, it's quite the challenge, though. It is a, an amazing um, undertaking, and I'm so proud of him for being courageous and brave enough to take that uh, challenge.
0: He is uh, representing your family well every single time I uh, see him. His message is clear and and powerful and filled with hope.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased uh, at at. The way he's built his muscle over a year and a half of doing this, he's just gotten sharper and sharper, and his message, like you say, is clear, it's courageous. Uh, he's really, in policy uh, issues, driving the other candidates uh, to a position that that he's taken first, typically. So it's been very interesting to see his policies kind of shape the, the campaign
0: it seems like he's a, a big idea guy with lots of uh, big ideas
1: yes he didn't get that from me i assure you but <laughs> but he has done a good job of of shaping his policy what he would see for the state uh, in the future but we'll see how this all works we got 20 i think 29 29 more days to go
0: yes Well, uh, I talked to your partner and, uh, one of the things I said, what, what keeps David going so, uh, active at at this particular season of life? And what he told me was, he said, um, David finds a way that whatever he's working on in the moment, he finds interesting and gets engaged in it.
1: Well, um, you know, I've been fortunate to have just a lot of interesting things to do over the years in my practice. And, and so, consequently, um, not doing the same thing means that every time you tackle something new, it's kind of reinvigorating, you know. And, and you, I like to learn, I like to burrow down with a bunch of cases and a bunch of documents and try to make some sense out of it all, you know? And that's kind of, I find that uh, I'm, I'm introverted enough to kind of enjoy that, you know? And um, maybe some people wouldn't find that a lot of fun, but I don't mind sitting in my office for uh, several hours, just burrowed down in there and uh, trying to figure it out, you know, trying to make sense out of it, and then building for the time when you let it all out in a deposition or hearing or something like that. Give
0: us an idea of the range of cases uh, that you've worked on over the course of your career.
1: Well, um, I've had, I started out, well, I actually started out in the Marine Corps doing court martials. And um, I did a couple of murder cases in Vietnam when I was in the Marine Corps. And that was interesting and challenging. Um, And then I went into the private practice in 1968 uh, here in Orlando. Um, You probably don't know this, but I was actually fired before I ever got to work in 1968. That's a, what what a privilege. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, it's a great way to start your practice. You know, I was I uh, I was interviewing before I went off to Vietnam in 1967, in several of the firms here in Orlando and in Tampa because I I thought I'd, I'd married a, a young woman from Sanford, Florida, and so I'd been exposed to Orlando and. Tampa, and I sort of liked this area and thought it'd be a good place to live. And so um, I started interviewing here before I went on. I knew I was going to be in Vietnam for 13 months. And I talked to some firms, and and while I was overseas, uh, it got a little more interesting. And one of the firms, um, Bob Anderson's firm, Decided that they wanted to talk to me very seriously. And so while I was in Hawaii on R&R in in January of 1968, I had several conversations with Mr. Anderson, and and, uh, he offered me a job. And um, not having a job when I got out of the service, that seemed like maybe a good idea. And and, uh, so I, I accepted his generous offer. And so I came back from Vietnam in, in uh, May of 68 and visited here before I went off to um, Paris Island for my last three months in the Marine Corps. And I uh, visited the firm, and um, John Lowndes was one of the lawyers there. Wow. I met him, went to try, watched him in trial. I think that might have been one of the only trials he'd ever done in his <laughs> life, uh, but he looked pretty good to me. And... Uh, and so I was enthused about my new firm, and, and so then in, I'm sitting up in, uh, in uh, Paris Island uh, in August of 2000, uh, August of 1968, and all of a sudden I get a call from Mr. Anderson. He tells me, you're not going to understand this, but we're not going to be able to honor our commitment to you. And um, that was like a big bomb uh, fell on my head at that point. And um, so, I took emergency leave for a week from the Marine Corps, gathered up my wife and my newborn son in the car, and we drove down to Orlando, and I started trying to find law firms to interview. And I knew one lawyer in Orlando, Far Abner, was a lawyer out in Winter Park at that time, and he got me in with with Leon, Hanley, and also with um, a couple of other lawyers. And I got three interviews. I interviewed at Ackerman and and Gurney Hanley and uh, Gurney Gurney and Hanley at that time, and uh, the Vandenberg firm. And it just so happened that one of the lawyers at um, Gurney and Hanley had left and so they needed to fill a spot and they fortunately uh, took me on so that's a long way of getting around to trying to answer your question which was the kind of cases i did so for the next two and a half years thankfully i did insurance defense work uh in the personal injury area and and that was a good start to being a trial lawyer and then i i did more general kinds of cases I, I, When I left there, I moved into a firm where I could do some personal injury and I tried uh, several personal injury cases uh, that I enjoyed doing. I did condemnation, I tried a major condemnation case, I did business cases uh, during that time, I did a will contest, uh, all of which were were fascinating, fascinating and interesting and different. And so I, I enjoyed that and then uh, Fred Pete and I decided we were going to be personal injury lawyers and specialize in that and so from 1974 until 1984 we did that uh, we got uh, some really good personal injury cases I did a did some product liability which I enjoyed very much um, but I also got things started walking in the door like construction cases. We did a big construction case on, the, on what was then called the Tangerine Bowl. They did some expansion of it, and unfortunately the superstructure couldn't hold air, much less people, and so we had a pretty major construction case on that. And uh, then in 84, uh, I started this, the firm I'm in now, And we did everything, did lots of interesting kinds of business cases. But I started off representing the Williams family, and that resulted in representing uh, uh, Steve Williams in in a federal court uh, tax fraud case. And that was the one criminal case that I've done in my practice. And it led to a three-month trial in federal court in wow. the summer of 1987, which was uh, quite the challenge. It about took me down. Uh, but it was a great experience. Um, continuing to do some personal injury, but more and more business litigation, condemnation, and... Um, contract litigation in 1998. I represented uh, NSYNC and helped get them out of their contract uh, with their business manager and their record company and and, and an injunction proceeding and then I've done Got involved in big trade secret litigation in 2003 to 2005, did a major case against KPMG for a a local company on a computer um, uh, concept and a software program sales. that involved a lot of money and it was interesting because it was one of the big white shoe firms in New York that defended KPMG and so that made for a very interesting outing. A bunch of trips to New York and depositions and that sort of thing did uh, a major case in in another product liability case in 2000 that was really one of my favorite cases and trials of all time was a little african-american girl who was badly burned by a gas-fired water heater and that was a, a great trial about a three and a half week trial uh, that got her a good result uh, and then, kind of rounding it out, in um, 2013, I got involved in the Fair Districts litigation. Now I'm a voting rights lawyer, a constitutional issues, state constitution issues. Uh, that was totally out of my wheelhouse. It was, uh, it was amazingly different than anything else that I'd ever done. Uh, but nobody else really. There really weren't many people that knew much about that. So, uh, fortunately, we had a client that was willing to give us the time and and help us learn uh, the case. And by the time we finished three trials on that, we kind of gotten it down. Yeah. Uh, then pretty good. And how
0: many appeals to the Florida Supreme were eight, Court? There
1: eight appeals to the Florida Supreme Court during the course of that litigation. I argued the last two in the in the florida supreme court uh, and so then to bring it up to uh, the president now i'm i'm over in federal court working on section 1983 defending a uh, lawsuit against the city and the police officers in the pulse nightclub shootings uh and that's a whole different area with a different kind of a, a case, and, and it's uh, very interesting.
0: How have you uh, had the, uh, I don't know the right word to say, I want to say gonads, you know, like the, the courage to take on all these different, just incredibly diverse different areas of the law, what's, what's personally empowered you to do that?
1: Well, one thing I've done is surround myself with really smart lawyers. That helps. And I've had some good people that have worked with me and made me look good. And they, I continue to, I've got the best group of young lawyers working with me now that I've ever had. And they're smart and talented and, and uh, willing to take on interesting things. Um, but I don't know, David. It's just. Um, Some of it is serendipity, you know? These cases just walk in the door. You know, as lawyers, we don't go out and solicit our cases. Uh, You can't go out and pick the ones you'd really like to do. I had to pick some others aspect along the way if I could. But uh, these interesting cases have kind of come in. I know, and it's it's been so fortunate. I remember on the Fair District cases, I mean... We were like the sixth law firm they interviewed five of them five fine law firms had turned them down before they got to us and um so i think maybe they were just kind of exhausted at that point and and looking to hire somebody that would be willing to take their case uh but but we were and
0: um, and why did you that I, I want to talk to you about that case, and I really can mm-hmm. talk to you about that the whole time. I'm going to resist that desire, but why did you say yes to that?
1: Uh, because it just was uh, an amazingly interesting challenge. I mean, it was going where no man had gone before, you know? I mean, this was the, the new fair district amendments. No, there'd been no legal interpretation of what those would mean, and whether they actually had the power and the strength to stop gerrymandering. And we had to uh, put flesh and bone behind those laws and make them work in in, uh, in a different, a difficult environment. And and the case was going to be up in Tallahassee, and. You know, every time I leave town, I always do it with somewhat fear and trembling because you just never know how you're going to get treated uh, somewhere else. I have to say that we were treated pretty well up in uh, Tallahassee. They, were, they had some good judges up there, and, and uh, they uh, were very fair uh, to us in that. But you never know. And then you're taking on a very formidable opponent in the state legislature. But, you know... I, I did that all through my practice, you know, when you sort of head down the small firm path, it means that you're going to be taking on uh, big companies, big corporations, uh, because they typically go to the, the big firms, and uh, you end up a lot of times with uh, representing the individual, uh, the person that's been mistreated, uh, and I like that challenge, I like that opportunity, because uh, it just brings out, um, I don't know, my the fire in your belly. You know, when you, when you feel like you're doing something that not only will feed your family and take care of your law firm and so on, but will also hopefully do some good for people that Lord knows need somebody to be their champion. You know, it's um, it's a it's a wonderful. It makes for a wonderful experience, and. Uh, obviously in fair districts i could look at that and i even i was smart enough to see that you could do an immense amount of good for the entire state of florida for all the people in florida who've been uh, who, who got the wrong end of the stick when this gerrymandering has been going on for all these years You could make a real difference if you could fight the battle and fight it all the way through and bring it home on the other side.
0: So so summarize for people that may not be familiar with the Fair District's case, summarize what kind of what the issue was.
1: Well, the issue was that some really far thinking, very intelligent citizens in Florida decided... Uh, in 2007 that gerrymandering was a very bad thing, that the way um, political um, representatives in the Senate and the the House of Representatives and the state government of Florida had drawn the voting districts, they'd drawn them to perpetuate their own positions. In other words, that they'd drawn them in a way to help um, the politicians remain in office, They'd drawn them so that the voters would, in those districts, would be favorable to the people that were drawing uh, the maps. And, and these folks decided that that was wrong, and long story very short, they worked their, the devil off, and they got a constitutional amendment that said we wouldn't have gerrymandering, that said you couldn't draw districts uh, to benefit a political party or a candidate and, or, or a person in office, and that districts had to be drawn in a rational way. They had to be drawn to become packed and, and to honor uh, artificial and geographical boundaries. Uh, and that was radical. I mean, that was... That, and that constitutional amendment was passed by the citizens of Florida, in 2010 63 percent of citizens voted for that and that's a supermajority, and that's what the people wanted but the legislature really never thought that was a good idea they fought the constitutional amendment as hard as they could and when it passed they said we'll follow it we're going to do it and they didn't and they did the drafting of the maps just the way they had always done it
0: I, I mean, I I I remember what what's the the oddest district?
1: Well, the oddest district was District Five, uh, which actually went from Jacksonville. It was a congressional district five. Uh, Kareem Brown was the officeholder there, and it went from Jacksonville. It narrowed to the width of a highway bridge uh, south of Jacksonville. And it kept going to the right and the left, picking up Democrats and African-Americans, and it meandered all the way down to Orlando. And it was one of the most gerrymandered congressional districts in the entire United States. It had that distinction. Uh, And uh, it had the benefit for uh, the people that drafted it is that because it performed extraordinarily well for the democrat it it diluted the democratic voters in all the surrounding districts and allowed the republicans to have a very significant majority in the, the house and the senate they had a well in the in the senate they had 26 seats and the democrats 14 And in the congressional delegation, they had 17 seats and the Democrats had 10 in a state that in the major elections was essentially a 50-50 state. Um, And so once that had occurred in 2012, the League of Women Voters and others decided that they could not tolerate that situation, that the, 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 the benefits of the constitutional amendment were being ignored by the Uh, by the legislature. And so they had to to force the legislature to abide by the constitutional amendment. And if that took a lawsuit, that's what they decided it was going to take. And so two lawsuits were filed. And that's what we ultimately ended up in. And those lawsuits came out successfully, completely successfully for the League of Women Voters. We got the new maps and we got new districts that abided by the admonition of the constitutional amendments.
0: And, and I know in the process it was an absolute throwdown
1: battle. Yeah, it was quite, quite a battle uh, because we were trying to do things that had never been done before. I mean, trying to depose legislators about their motives in, 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 do, in doing what they did. And, and they fought very, very hard to keep from having to sit down in depositions and have to testify under oath. But ultimately, Supreme Court ruled they had to do that. And we got to take those depositions, and we got to call those legislators at the trials, uh, and it went very well for us.
0: How, how many trips did you make to Tallahassee?
1: I think the the last count was like 43 trips to Tallahassee. <laughs>
0: you must uh, love Tallahassee.
1: <laughs> well, that was that's a long, hard road road up there. Yes. Um, It only has one saving grace. There's the finest road stop in the world is on the way there. The Busy Bee near Live Oak, Florida is is a wonderful oasis in the middle of that drive. What
0: makes the Busy Bee the best? Well, it's got the
1: finest restrooms I've ever seen, plus it's got a beef jerky counter that's got like 30 kinds of beef jerky. Now, I don't like beef jerky, but that's just such an odd and interesting situation that it, it certainly holds your attention. Well, um, In case you ever want some, like,
0: Python jerky, it's there. I want some Python jerky, <laughs> and I will stop at the Busy Bee at some yeah. point. Um, did you ever have any, any moments... Um, because I know it was a roller coaster ride, and it's easy now that you won um, for people to say, Well, of course, it's the right thing, but I know it was a, just a battle. Were there moments along the journey where you thought, I made a mistake? I, I shouldn't have done this?
1: Well, I, I don't know that I ever was willing to, to, to say I'd, that I shouldn't have done it, but there were certainly moments uh, that in that case, and frankly, almost every other big case I've been involved in where things go wrong. I mean, cases do not run in a linear fashion. They typically, somebody finds a bunch of things that nobody knew about two weeks before the trial or something. Uh, uh, We were just putting together stuff during our trial. Uh, that we had gotten in discovery at the very end of the case and then the, the uh, first district court of appeal in that trial said that we couldn't use it. Well that was a pretty low moment. Uh, four days into trial when all of a sudden you find out that a big part of the evidence you're going to put on in the second week of trial the first district court of appeal has just reached down and said you can't use that evidence in the trial. That's, uh, that's a little painful.
0: Um, How did you walk through that? Um, and, and I think of someone like myself, I've experienced the the nonlinear fashion uh, of litigation, the low points. What is it that you do to help walk through those moments of doubt and fear and uh, chaos?
1: Well, all you can do is you, you, you do have some panicky feelings for a while. And then you try to take some breaths and uh, put your head down and, and try to decide what can we do to maybe change this situation or to deal with this situation? What, where's our end run around this hurdle that's just sprung up in front of us, you know? And in the case we're just talking about, uh, the Fair District's case, It just meant that one of my smart young lawyers had to sit down and work all night long on an appeal to the Supreme Court in the middle of the trial, and he did, and we got an appeal filed the next morning, and four days later, the Supreme Court reversed the first ECA. But, you know, all you could do is do what you could do. I just kept doing what I was doing, which was the next morning I got up and cross-examined several more witnesses on Friday. Uh, after that setback and tried to do the best job I could do of it and hoped uh, that maybe I I mean we were prepared to go ahead if we didn't get that evidence in it would have weakened our our case uh, and it would have kept us from telling the entire story of their nefarious uh, dealings but um, fortunately we did get to put in the whole story But, but we would have We'd have managed something, I'm sure, if we hadn't been able to do that. You started practicing, is it, did you say, 67? Uh, well, I uh, passed the bar in 65, went in the Marine Corps, practiced, uh, did court-martial work in the Marine Corps in 66 to 68, and then uh, went into the private practice in September of 1968 here in Orlando. What,
0: what are the biggest changes that you've seen for the good um, and the bad in the practice of law over that time?
1: Well we were a lot smaller bar back in those days and so you knew everybody I don't know 20 percent of the bar now it doesn't seem like um, back then I knew everybody um, we could all get in a picture together uh, They, they ever, For several years there, they took a picture and hung it up in the courthouse and had all of our pictures in it, you know, I mean, in one frame. Uh, You couldn't do that today, uh, I don't think. Um, And, of course, then it was like a technological desert. I mean, we barely had copiers working then, (laughs) you know. We were just starting to get copiers. And uh, um, I remember... Um, getting the first IBM display writer which was a bit of a power typewriter and it cost $18,000 and you know there weren't computers um, and you didn't have this need to have just an instant response to everything once something comes up you know I mean you'd You'd sit down, and you'd get your legal assistant, and you would draft a letter, and she would type it up for you, and then you would send it out, and you could relax for several days because it would take three or four days to get where it was going, you know, and then somebody on the other end would think about it. You'd get a response back in about a week or ten days. Not so today. No. Uh, Today you're supposed to respond in, like, 30 minutes, you know, to somebody's question or concern. And it's, I don't know that it, I think it makes for a lot of times decisions that aren't so good uh, when they're made hastily uh, like that. But that's just the world we live in today. Um, That's a big difference. Tell me
0: um, the most unexpected thing that you've discovered in your journey in the practice of
1: law? Well, I think I've discovered that um, how can I put this, that that uh, sometimes uh, good things happen to good lawyers and sometimes good business doesn't necessarily go to good lawyers. You know, you'd think in um, the equation that the better the lawyer, the better the business necessarily, you know, uh, that would come to them. But that's not always the case. Um, I, I learned a long time ago that there were two kinds of lawyers. Uh, there were lawyers that could have that had cases and there were lawyers that could do work and do it well skilled lawyers and the fellow that was telling me that said you know the the lawyers that can do good work will always work for the ones that have cases Um, so I, i kind of have accommodated myself fortunately we've gotten enough good work that we've been fine yes um,
0: yes well i you know uh, that's good stuff well in terms of uh I'll, i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with the the good lawyers good cases do you when, when you look at the way that legal services are delivered currently um if you could move the dials or change the algorithm, what would you change?
1: Um, The way that legal services are delivered. Let me re-ask it differently. Mm -hmm. In
0: terms of how um, clients find lawyers, what would you change, if
1: anything? Well, look, I've for a long time, I thought legal a- advertising was a very bad thing. Um, I hated to see that move to the fore. Uh, I sort of rationalized in, in my own mind that whites ultimately can be helpful because they're there are people that don't know about lawyers, and they see information about lawyers. Now, the kind of information they see about lawyers from legal advertising, though, is is kind of distressing. And, and maybe um, it's, you know, I'm, I, I never have done any legal advertising, and consequently, um, I ended up, I've ended up doing almost no personal injury in the last 10 or 15 years because the advertisers get most of that I think and it changed the model when I the first 30 years of my practice a lot of personal injury cases would go to the general practitioner the general practitioner would refer them to lawyers and you'd end up if you, you built a referral network, you'd end up with the cases. Now the advertisers have cut through that with their advertising budgets it seems to me and consequently it goes straight to them and um, the people that profit out of that are the are the TV stations and the newspapers and the radios uh, radio stations who get their cut out of that uh, market but are the people worse off I don't know that they are necessarily I mean there is it, it, we have the freedom to of speech to to uh, advertise our wares and and uh, it gives younger lawyers the opportunity to try to get their name out uh, in a way that they couldn't do that before so it's a I don't know that it's a satisfactory, Result, but it's it's what we live with now, and I've accommodated myself to it. Let
0: me uh, let me flip gears, um, and I, I want to talk uh, for a minute about advocacy. Um, who is the in your career the best advocate uh, you've ever experienced? Either you've worked with, seen, or worked against.
1: Um. Well, when I started out in the practice, certainly I was very fortunate in that I carried Leon Hanley's bag around for a while, for a couple of years, long enough to go to several trials with him, watch him in action, and he was uh, he was a very, very, he he's a very fine lawyer and did a great job, and he commanded the courtroom, and he had so much experience. You know, people really had a lot of experience as trial lawyers back in those days. (coughs) Excuse me. Because they were trying cases uh, on almost a weekly basis. Um, It's hard to imagine the pressure that those kind of lawyers were under uh, because there would be five or six cases uh, coming up for trial every Monday. And they'd start trying to settle them on Friday afternoon, continue over the weekend, and settle some on the courthouse steps on Monday morning and then usually start a trial. And so it was constant. And Leon was trying cases all over Central Florida. And he was known everywhere he went. You went with Leon, everybody knew you uh, because he, he, he cut quite a swath. Uh, in in those days. Um, He he was a very fine lawyer. Then I remember all of a sudden we had a case against Colson and Hicks from Miami. Bill Colson was president of the American Trial Lawyers at one point, I think. Bill Bill Hicks was the president of the Florida Trial Lawyers. Uh, And all of a sudden these fellows had come up from Miami to try a case in Orange County Circuit Court. Leon and I were sitting there as the defense lawyers. Leon, of course, was our defense lawyer. And they fought it out for a day or two and then settled the case for like $10,000 or something like that. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Um, Now, in, in light of what people... Nobody would think of going to trial for a case involving $10,000. Uh, Some
0: insurance companies would, but.
1: <laughs> well, back then, you got Colson and Hicks. Yes. And Leon uh, in a courtroom to fight that battle. Uh, so it was pretty interesting. Um, then, <coughs> excuse me, another fi- very fine lawyer that I got the opportunity to watch in action and was very impressed with was Jim Neal. Jim Neal was a uh, lawyer in Nashville, Tennessee, and he was a um, Watergate prosecutor. He also, he was in the Justice Department, and he also prosecuted Jimmy Hoffa in a case called, uh, what was called the Test Fleet case. It just so happened that that case was going on when I was in law school at Vanderbilt in 1963, and I walked down to the federal courthouse and watched a day or two of that trial. And it was very impressive uh, to watch him in action. He was a bulldog and uh, and and was a very fine lawyer. Now, after he left the Justice Department, he went on and became the lawyer, like, for example, in the first Pinto case when Ford Motor Company was uh, charged with uh, um, uh, home, negligent homicide, or whatever it was. He defended him up in uh, Indiana, I think it was. He defended Exxon in the, Exxon, uh, the Valdez case. Uh, he defended Governor Edwards down in in, in uh, Louisiana. He defended Elvis Presley's doctor in Memphis. And I got the opportunity to go up and help get him employed to represent uh, my client in the Williams case. Um, and he did some great work in that case. And I was so looking forward to going to trial with him. But it was not to be because he was involved out in Los Angeles representing John Landis, uh, the director in the Vince Mora. Uh, decapitation case you know they were filming a a movie out there and the rotors of the helicopter took Vince Maher down and uh, Neil was out there for 11 months uh, in trial and the trial just kept going and kept going and our judge here in Orlando wouldn't wait any longer and we had to get other lawyers to join us what What
0: made Jim Neal such a good lawyer? What were the qualities you saw because he
1: was he was very um, courageous and positive and confident uh, and satisfied that he was up to the task, whatever the task was you know and um and he was very organized and disciplined um uh, and very capable on his feet as well. And, and he developed, he just had a way, I think, of developing a rapport with jurors that they knew this was a guy you could trust and, and that you could depend on. And plus, they investigated cases to uh, just an incredible level. And they came up regularly with stuff that won cases for him by just out investigating everybody else uh, involved. Um, so he was he, he was an interesting guy but he, he told me that he I remember sitting with him out in Winter Park in a restaurant when he was down here for something in that case as it was developing and he told me that um, he had had something like 13 cases that were in trial longer than two months and And he said, you know, it was, it was. uh, He had had a fascinating career, but it cost him two families. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, that's a, that's a tough bargain you make when you make that kind of a bargain uh, to give up two families uh, for your legal career. I'm just thankful. I've never had to. I've had enough work, but it hadn't been like killer like that, except for short bursts of time. You know, there's there are some times that you just have to devote yourself to the practice, and it's it's 18 hours a day um, when you're in trial or getting ready for trial or something like that. But a steady diet of that uh, where you're doing it all the time, going out of town to do tra- cases like he was doing. I mean, for, for 11 months, he would fly from Nashville on Sunday night to Los Angeles and fly home on the red-eye on Thursday night.
0: Yeah, there's a price to pay. It's, uh,
1: there's, that's no way to live. Yes. How long have you been married? I've been married. I will be married uh, this month, 54 years.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah. How uh, How have you done that? Well, just, uh, my wife is long-suffering, but, but she uh, she's hung in there with me. Uh, it, no, I, we, I made a—I just really did well back in 1964 when I finally talked her into marrying me. And, uh, and, and she is a wonderful woman and a great mother— and I couldn't have done better, and so I knew that I've known that all along, and so I'm just hang hanging on there to her she can't get away from me.
0: If you were to give uh, those of us that would uh, not like to go through two families and would like to stay married for the rest of our lives, what advice would you give?
1: Well, you just got to respect your wife, and you got to care about her and um that's her calling me right now. You, you, you can uh, take that. She we heard, can stop. She heard that question, <laughs> I think, and we might need uh, to put her on on speakerphone <laughs> and ask her. No, we don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> but um, you, you just you have to care about. In other words, I care that we talk during the day. I care that we're going to have dinner together tonight. We're going to have dinner every night uh, somewhere. I mean we may meet at a restaurant if I were really busy I might come back to work but I'd probably go meet her uh, as we've done hundreds and hundreds of times and we'd have lunch uh, have dinner and I'd find out what happened to her day and she'd want to know about what I'd done today and and there's a easy flow of communication that's necessary because if you If you shut people down if you shut them out if you're not interested in that person uh, then it's I see bad things that happen from that Um, we're happy to be together we enjoy going on trips together we enjoy um, each other and that's something that you need to cultivate and work at every single day Um,
0: it's good advice let me uh, ask about uh, what you do for fun outside of the practice of law, mm-hmm. outside of uh, campaigning for your son and <laughs> staying happily married, what, 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 you, what are your hobbies?
1: Well, I, I enjoy reading, I'm a, I'm a big reader. What kind of books? Uh, I read a lot of different kinds of books. Um, I, I read a lot of uh, fiction. Uh, but I read nonfiction as well. In fact, here lately, I've just been reading, I've been on a, read a couple of really good books, nonfiction. Um, and so I enjoy that. I, you know, just, I don't know whether this would be interesting to you or not, but for some reason, I decided back in 1995 that I would write down the name of every book I read. So I keep a, a record, and I have records since 1995, uh, of every book I've read. And um, there's something very, I don't know that that's a complimentary thing to say, but I mean, that's that's just what I've done. And, and so now I'm, like since then, I'm, I think I'm oh, about 1,820 books. Wow, uh, that, that I've read during that time. So I know what I've read. I can at least go back and figure out what I've read for the last 23 years. Uh, What's your favorite book? I, I don't know what my favorite book would be. I, I, I read a couple of books that I really liked. Uh, Birdsong by Sebastian Falk. Another a book, A Soldier in the Great War by Mark Halperin. Uh, those were both uh, great books. Um, here lately, I, I, well, I've enjoyed. Uh, I just read not long ago uh, *Beneath the Ruthless Sun* by Gilbert King, his second book after, uh, or the, after. Um, a Devil in a Grove, which were both great, great books about Lake County, which was very interesting to me. Yes, um, and, and it was very interesting. The second one, Beneath the Ruthless Sun, was very interesting because I knew um, some of the people in that. But they were some of those things were actually going on in the 70s when 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 I was in practice here. And I just read also Bad Blood, which was very interesting about the. The woman out in California that started the company that was going to, you know, prick your finger. And, yes. and they'd be able to run 300 blood tests on that. And that was, uh, of course, a big fraud. And that was very interesting. And then I just read Indianapolis, uh, which was about the sinking of the cruiser Indianapolis, you know. In 1945, it was the ship that carried uh, components of the atomic bomb to... Tinian I think where they went, then went by plane to be dropped carried it and then turned around and was coming into the Philippine Sea when it got torpedoed and spilled something like 800 sailors into the sea and uh, nobody, picked, nobody was looking for them and they were out there for four and a half days and the sharks uh, were after them and everything. It was a really heroic uh, and then the, the the captain got court-martialed and he was the only captain that ever got court-martialed for losing his ship in a war and ultimately that got turned around in 2001 i think finally it's a, just a great story uh, wonderful story i like a lot of crime fiction too um i like historical fiction i, I just really enjoy reading and then I get to combine that with traveling. And I really enjoy reading and traveling at the same time. Uh, we, we
0: and then if you can add your wife, you have three right. of your favorite That's right. I've always things. got
1: my wife along uh, on the travels. So that's uh, that's kind of what we look forward to.
0: Let me ask you um, a, a question. And if you're comfortable asking, uh, answering it, that's fine. And if you're not, that's okay. Um, can you share what... what you would perceive to be the the greatest loss or greatest failure in your life?
1: Um, Well, I've had um, certainly some difficult uh, issues to deal with. I mean, we lost a son in 1997. Uh, my 30-year-old son, uh, and that was a a huge, huge loss that we still uh, deal with every single day. Um, That's the worst that I've dealt with. How how
0: did you walk through that? And for people that have uh, experienced a loss or are experiencing a loss, what would you tell them and how to walk through that?
1: Well, all you can do, I mean, all you can do is just forge ahead understanding that there's going to be a hole in your heart for the rest of your life, but that that hole is not going to hurt you as bad as time goes on. You'll have um, some um, healing qualities. And of course, I, we had our faith to turn back to, we, we, we believe in our God that um, David went to a better place and that we'll be there to join him one of these days and we weren't going to let that loss take us down uh, and keep us from <coughs> living the very best life we could for our other two sons and for ourselves.
0: Well, thank you for sharing. I'm sorry about your loss mm-hmm. and I appreciate your vulnerability. Um, all right. I'm going to totally get into uh, practical stuff now. So go from the most emotional thing without okay. any good transition, uh, to uh, some practical law stuff. If you were to give, advice on different areas and I'm gonna spit spitball some different areas and if you can give me your one sentence or one paragraph piece of advice on on these areas that would be great let's start with this Um, writing effective writing
1: well I I think you have to be very clear um, and try To be as direct and simple as you can be without, you know, I think these long paragraphs and long uh, sentences uh, that just get so convoluted are a big mistake. I think um, the more more direct you can be, the better you are, and, and the best thing you can do is have some good young lawyers that write well. And then you're editing. Then you're (laughs) editing, exactly.
0: Yes, I like editing a lot better than writing. Um, Effective communication with judges.
1: Uh, Well, you got to be honest, and you got to try to build your reputation, because that's so important to you when you're dealing with the court. The court's got to know that they can depend on you to tell them the truth, uh, to give them the current state of the law, whatever it is, whether it helps you or you hurt hurt you, uh, you got to tell them the way it is. And then they will build confidence in you um, and accept, you know, so often, and it shouldn't necessarily be this way, but so often um, you're in front of the judge that you and your opponent, and the judge may not have a lot of information about your case. And so that judge is looking for who uh, can be depended on, uh, who exudes reliance and confidence and and honesty. And that may be the lawyer sometimes that wins the hearing. Negotiating. Um, Well, I just think you have to have a goal. You have to have a plan. Um, you have to have some fallback positions and uh, know what you've got to work with, what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, and then you got to proceed on that basis. Again, if you have um, a uh, reputation uh, as being somebody that can follow through, if you're not successful in negotiating, that'll help a lot.
0: Yes. Um advising clients about information they do not want to hear. In other words, sharing with a client advice and counsel that you know they don't want to hear.
1: Well, I I just try to explain to clients that they're not paying me my hourly rate to get a cheerleader. They can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. Uh, They're getting a lawyer who will give them the good news and who will give them the bad news and hopefully will help them figure out how to deal with the bad news. But you've got to be able to talk straight to your clients and tell them exactly what they—please don't lead those clients down the primrose path, you know, and make them think everything's great when it's not, because there will be a day of reckoning in that situation.
0: You were uh, longtime partners with uh, Bruce Blackwell, who's an amazing lawyer and a, a, a great man in this community. Um, how long were you all partners for?
1: Uh, we were partners um, at least from 84 to about 2012, or 13 when he left to go to the Bar Foundation.
0: Advice on maintaining a healthy law partnership.
1: Well, you just got to be. Um, well, here, here's the thing. We've always had a good relationship here because we like one another now. In other words, so much in the practice of law, a lot of times partnerships have become businesses. And uh, people make decisions about who their partners are but, uh, as a business decision. I mean, it's a. So-and-so's got a book of business. Well, how big is that book of business? Well, it's big enough that it'll help us. So, okay, let's go hire so-and-so to come work. Well, is so-and-so a good person? Is he somebody you like or have an affinity to? Well, I don't know, but he's got a book of business, uh, and we need that book of business. Well, that's not the kind of partnerships I've been a part of. Uh, We've gotten people that we... We partnered with people we like, Uh, we spend time with them, we go to lunch together. Um, We just have a very collegial uh, relationship. And so in that kind of a a setup, uh, it's not hard to keep partners and to have a good relationship with them.
0: Hiring uh, talent. You've had a lot of uh, very, very talented lawyers uh, be a part of your law firm. What's advice on hiring talent? How you, how you can spot real talent?
1: Um, I wish I was better at that uh, than I have been in the past. Uh, I've had great lawyers that work with me, but I don't know that it was because of, for example, Tom Zender started as a runner in the firm. We hired him as a runner. Uh, and he becomes the president of the bar and a great lawyer and a great partner. Um, so our runner program is very <laughs> solid, uh, you know. Um, uh, I mean, it's one, one, one way we've hired really good lawyers is uh, we've fortunately had some advice from federal judges. They call us and tell us when they've got good law clerks that are looking for work. And uh, we've we've picked up some really good lawyers that way. Um, I think you need to look at their background and their experience and what they've done. And we found that clerkships, federal clerkships, are really very valuable. As far as I think the judges do a good job in picking out good people. And so when we piggyback on that, we've had pretty good success
0: advice on uh, persuading
1: juries um, well you you just got to be i think you've got to be prepared and and confident and passionate and energetic um that goes a long way i think um in that a jury sees that, and 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 you're telling them the truth. Uh, what you're telling them uh, fits with what they're hearing from the witness stand. And if you got problems, you confront them. Um, you're not trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And um, and then good clients take you a long way they in front do. of a jury.
0: So let me ask you, client yeah. selection.
1: Well, some of the very best decisions I've ever made have been turning down cases. Yes, <laughs> uh, you, you really need to think hard, long, and hard about that. There are a lot of people that will uh, that want you to carry their banner. That maybe that's not the greatest banner to carry. And and if you decide, realize that, and understand that, and make that decision on the front end then you save yourself a lot of misery because it's a lot harder to make that decision down the road when you've been representing these folks that you've decided you don't really want to represent. It's hard to abandon them then. You, 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 you have an obligation to them at that point. So if you can make that decision on the front end, you're a lot better off.
0: One thing I've been asking folks about is um, how, how can people be a good mentee? like you've mentored Tom and he's got a fantastic career and many other people. What can a younger person do so that someone who is successful and been there wants to invest their life in a younger lawyer?
1: Well, they can show, uh, their interest, um, in, and and help you understand how important it is to them. For example, when I started, I was really interested in learning about trials and what, what it meant. Now I was getting to watch Leon in action and some of the other lawyers in that firm that I was in, but we had a law library up in the library, and it had a bunch of continuing legal education books in it um, the annals of the American trial lawyer and stuff like that and they had transcripts of, of trials and things like that and I'd take those books home and read them and and it was just interesting to me to try to learn stuff about trials uh, I remember when I was law clerking over in Tampa and um, very famous lawyer, Ch- uh, Chester Bedell, was trying a case over there in the summertime in, back in 1964. And I went over to that courthouse and watched him in action probably four or five times while I, whenever I could slip away from the office to watch him in action. You, you got to be able to, you got to be interested. And you know, if I were a young lawyer uh, starting out, I'd find out who the good lawyers were in town. I'd try to find out when they're going to be in court. Go watch them. See what you can learn uh, from that. And, and when, when you have that kind of a interest, that bubbles up for a lawyer, a mentor. I think they'd be very interested in helping somebody that showed that kind of interest in, in learning a skill.
0: Depositions.
1: Well, I like depositions. I've taken an awful lot of them. Sometimes I wonder if I'm not a deposition lawyer instead of a trial lawyer, you know. And in this room, I've taken hundreds of depositions sitting right across just like I'm sitting from you. Um, And it's so important. So many people just take such a casual approach to a deposition, but... I just think it's so important to be prepared and ready to get something out of the deposition. It's one thing just to find out what somebody's going to say about some factual situation, but it's another thing to try to shape their testimony so you get it out the way you want it to come out and and in a way that will help your client. Sometimes you can do that with not a lot of effort, but other times, I mean, I've spent weeks and weeks preparing for a deposition. I've read, accumulated 20 or 30 prior deposition transcripts of a witness, like when it's an expert or something like that, and studied those and annotated them and used them to prepare for the deposition. Uh, So you gotta come out of the deposition with something that you can use at the trial if you don't have a good deposition, you're not in position to really hammer the witness in the trial. And that's what the deposition's for. It tells you, one, what happened or what the witness can say, but, two, to nail it down so that you have, if you're up against some skilled uh, expert, you can't give those people any room to run at the trial. You've got to be able to nail them to a e- and, and hopefully, you have the stuff you need in the deposition. You just want to regurgitate that at the trial. And if they try to deviate from that, you've got a hammer. Uh, but if you don't have a good deposition, you're in you're in deep trouble.
0: You are uh, known for meticulous outlines. Though the, that the manner in which you prepare. Um, charting out your cases, modules. What what advice uh, in your experience of preparing outlines to prepare for depositions, hearings, arguments? Can you give?
1: Well, I mean, we you try to you try to develop your documents and you get your documents into modules, like you say. Um, what do you mean by modules? Well, like a, a subject matter, okay. a, a topic. And, and a deposition, there might be 30, 40 topics that you got to cover, but you want to have your documents that, that deal with each of those documents. I like to put those documents together uh, and, and, and name them and number them and the way I'm going to use them and mark them with everything I need in them that I'm going to bring out or use to, to cross-examine the witness with and I like to have a a pretty good outline but you know when you get to the deposition if you've really worked it over pretty good uh I don't sometimes I follow the de- the outline some but sometimes I don't because you just got to listen to the witness and you, and you've got your documents you want to you know what you want to cover with those and you got to be ready to I I just don't use a lot of written-out questions. Uh, I try to have a topic and and try to understand it well enough to to really go through it and, and concentrate on what the witness is saying about it.
0: Let's talk about uh, something that everyone uh, deals with, which is a very difficult opposing counsel. And and by difficult, um, I'm being kind. I I mean the kind that is abrasive, rude, Mm. difficult, unprofessional, all of those things. How do you deal with that person?
1: Well, you know, uh, that's a challenge. I struggle with that just like anybody else does Um, and but but I try to be reasonably non-confrontational I I think a lot of times they're really happy to get in big fusses and um, because that's what they like to do And, and they like to yell and squeal and and Things And so I just try to avoid that if I can. I, I try to ignore slights and uh, uh, affronts. Um, and, you know, I'm not... I've blundered and I've fallen into the trap of taking the bait uh, some uh, in situations where I wish I hadn't. But, but on the whole, I try to ignore that. And and frankly, the older you get and the longer you've been at this, those people maybe cut you a little more slack than they do a young lawyer, you know, which is not fair or right, but that's just the way it's a
0: privilege. It it, it
1: is a privilege. (laughs) Yes. How about avoiding burnout? Um, Well, I think the fact that we do a lot of different kind of stuff has helped if I were doing the same thing over and over again for if I'd been a defense lawyer, insurance defense lawyer for 40 for 50 years, uh, asking the same questions to the plaintiff every time, you know, the treating doctor, uh, the examining doctor, uh, it would be pretty rugged. Uh, but, But we've had a lot of different kinds of cases, and that helps.
0: It's interesting, because um, from a business perspective, most business people would say specialize, 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 that it's better economically. But as I look at your career, I can't deny that in your category of experience, you're as engaged and satisfied practicing law as any Mm -hmm. person I've met.
1: Well, I've just been very fortunate uh, that that sometimes those people bring us cases that are big enough that we can spend the time economically to learn how to handle the case while we're doing it. Uh, (laughs) you know, if it was a small case, you couldn't do that. You couldn't take the time uh, to do that. Uh,
0: You know, one thing I hear a lot from this younger, uh, uh, younger lawyers is they want to know what can they do? What are the things that they can do to become better lawyers? What what things would you say are things practical things that younger lawyers can do in order to become better?
1: All right. Watch good lawyers in action. Uh, Get as much CLE as they can uh, that involves trials and things like that. If that's what they're interested in, in being a trial lawyer Um, and do their best to try to get into the fray. Um, It's hard um they can go to these trial programs where they actually participate in a trial that's uh worthwhile they can volunteer uh to get over in the state's attorney's office or the federal prosecutor's office to to try to get some trial experience that way uh, you learn by doing
0: yes what would you say are the most common mistakes that you see young lawyers making
1: well um maybe just the not the willingness to roll their sleeves up and really learn their case that's once you do that you're in you're in so much better shape as you proceed ahead but some I see some young lawyers that their confidence exceeds their capability Um, and that's not a good situation I'm worried that might be me no Uh. no not from what I hear about
0: you (laughs) Um, I want to talk to two different types of lawyers okay and the first is a group of say let's let's say 25 to 35 and if 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 you think of what you know today as compared to what you knew when you were 25 to 35, what advice would you give to that group of lawyers that you wish you knew back then that you know now?
1: Well, um, my advice would be to get in a situation Uh, that you're comfortable in as quick as you can, and be willing to accept some short-term pain for long-term gain. In other words, be willing to get in a situation where you have the opportunity to get to court, to learn your trade, even if it's maybe not the most lucrative deal. an example, when I got fired, the firm that fired me, I was going to make 750 a week, a month. and But that firm, actually, I didn't really appreciate and understand at the time. They mainly did real estate. And while I might have gotten a little trial experience, um, I don't think I would have been... Near as prepared as I was when I went to the Gurney firm, there they pay me six fifty a month, and I got—I didn't do anything but trial work, and I ended up. I think that was a blessing in disguise. I didn't understand it at the time, but it was. Uh, so get in a position where you can learn your trade.
0: Let me let me go to a different group of lawyers. Um, these are lawyers that have. Um, they're through the initial figuring out how to be a lawyer. They're, say, 40 to 50 or maybe even a little bit older, but they still have plenty of time to practice law. What advice would you give them?
1: Well, I think I think you need to build your brand, and I think you ought to uh, get involved in bar work. Um, one of the things I'm the proudest of is that I was the president of the Orange County Bar. Uh, My partner, Bruce Blackwell, was president of the Orange County Bar. My partner, May Ann Downs, was president of the Orange County Bar. My partner, Tom Zender, was president of the Orange County Bar. Uh, We all went down that road and we were all better for it. Uh, And that's not just the Bar Foundation, but. The Florida Bar, we got involved in that, and Bruce and Mann and I all have served on the Board of Governors of the Florida Bar, and we we learned and we grew from that. Um, and I, I just really think that's something that, that lawyers in their midlife ought to be involved in.
0: That's good advice, and it, it seems like that concept of building your brand, whether it's through the bar or through some other way is just sound. It's good. Um, Professionally, have you ever suffered a a devastating trial loss, ripped your heart out?
1: Well, yes, I have. Uh, I mean, when my client got convicted in the the Williams tax fraud case, I, I hated that. I mean, that was, I didn't get over that for, that was a three-month trial that we lost, and I didn't get over that for a year, probably. I mean, that's painful. It's painful to lose. If it's not painful to lose, you're in the wrong business. Um, but you don't have to lose a trial. I think, as a lawyer, you know when the other lawyer has outdone you, whether you win or lose the trial. Um, and I know I had a, a case a, a personal injury case back when I was getting started and the other lawyer did a better job than I did I thought I'd stayed up till like 3 o'clock in the morning and and made fine then we made final arguments the next day and I thought the other lawyer did a better job than I did in final argument I made a rule from that time forward I never stayed up during a trial past 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm usually trying to get to bed by midnight. Uh, it's just not a good plan, and a lot of people do it. I mean, I've run into people that have been up all night long uh, in, in a trial. You're just not as sharp and quick. But you know when the other lawyer's outdone you, and I don't like that at all, and it, it it really puts the fire in your belly to make sure that doesn't happen again.
0: I remember trying a case against uh, Tommy Dukes, and I, I was exhausted every day, staying up, you know, yeah. three, four, five in the morning. And he looked fresh every day. And I said to him, "How in the world do you, do you do that?" And he said, "I prepare all of my directs and all of my crosses before day one of the trial. Every single one of them. And while." today that sounds like of course you do yeah but at the time i said well now that makes sense yeah um what is the most important thing you would speak to this next generation of lawyers to make the world a better place take out their careers but to make the world a better place
1: um well i think just to be open and available for opportunities to use your skills in a way that do improve the community that you live in. Uh, Lawyers have great skills and abilities. Uh, Your deductive uh, skills and your reasoning skills and your Uh, innate intelligence and your ability to digest large amounts of information and to put it together and make it make sense is of such great use to your community if you're willing uh, to be available and to serve in that capacity and I think lawyers ought to do that more than we do. As I look back on my career I wish I had done a lot more in that area. Um, You know and I have to say, your career goes by fast. It, it, um, it, it seems like it's gone very rapidly.
0: Well, if it's any consolation, when I hear you spoken about by other lawyers, I hear stories of um, you giving advice and counsel to lawyers in the worst moments of their life. And mm-hmm. so while you may not be aware of it, I know you've touched a lot of people uh, in my circle.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Um,
0: If you had a magic wand and you could wave the magic wand and fix one issue in the world, what issue would it be?
1: Um, There are just so many uh, places that I'd love to wave that magic wand. But, you know, right now, the thing that is such a, a um, millstone around my neck is the partisan bias that we have between our political parties um, now that is just such just just grinding us down I mean it's just uh, it's a, it's a terrible situation and I wish it were I wish We had bipartisan leadership. I wish people could look at both sides of issues and come to some common ground. And I just don't see that happening. And I just see more and more polarization, uh, which is, I just don't see how it's a big problem. Um,
0: You have any uh, grandiose, they don't have to be realistic, but ideas that would help fix that?
1: No, I'd sure love to see my son get elected governor of uh, Florida. That would be a big uh, boost, I think. That would be a good thing. Um, but I don't have any other quick solutions to that. Okay. Uh,
0: what, what are you most hopeful for in this season of your life? Most optimistic about? Uh,
1: well, I just want to close out well. Uh, I think, you know, the finish is very important that you finish strong. You know, and I'm just so thankful that my health has held up, and and I'm still here, with uh, reasonable optimism and excitement about coming into work, and still getting um, nervous about going to court. You know, I got to go to court you still tomorrow get nervous. morning. Yeah, I got to go to court in federal court tomorrow, and I'm I'm all pumped up about that. You know, uh, so it's um, you know who knows how long you have at any. Any moment, you know, but we'll see um, how I close it down.
0: Um, what do you do to stay healthy? You look great. You look healthy.
1: Well, you know, you try to exercise. I go to a trainer a couple times a week and I uh, ride my bicycle some now, uh, quite a bit, in fact, and uh, just try to stay active. I got these two flights of stairs here in the firm. We don't have an elevator, so I go up and down those stairs a bunch of times a day. So that's probably a good thing.
0: Any uh, message that you would speak out to the world that sits in your heart that you think is important for other people to know?
1: Um. No, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not thinking. There's so many messages yeah. uh, that I can't really uh, uh, come up with one. I don't think right now
0: be Chris King for governor
1: yeah other than
0: that make a smart choice yeah um well David I am so thankful for your time I don't take it for granted one of your sons um uh once said this he said uh my dad is like an Atticus Finch type of lawyer and I will tell you as I have grown up in this town and practice here uh you are that And you are that to many. So uh, thank you for the role model you are to me and many others.
1: I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.